How many of you like chocolate? I like chocolate. If you ever, we try to have as many of you over to our home for a meal as possible. If we haven't gotten to you yet, we will. But I'll let you in on a secret. At least it's got a chocolate stash that uh, I keep supplied for her. I don't really eat from that very rarely, but I have my own. But uh, she has a chocolate stash. But here's the here's the question that divides nations, a question that separates people. Do you prefer milk or dark chocolate? That's the. Oh, see, there's already. Mm. How many of you are milk chocolate people? Yeah, I'm sorry. How many of you are dark chocolate people? Oh, that's about 50, 50, 50, 50. How many of you don't like chocolate? Uh, there's there's the exit right there. So please leave a card when you leave so we know how to get a hold of you. So. How many of you like Either like semi-sweet chocolate or bittersweet chocolate, which I do. I like the bittersweet. Now, the word bittersweet is a very interesting word. Uh, It means basically pleasure that's accompanied by suffering or regret. Uh, Go with me to Revelation chapter 10. We are going to be in Thessalonians chapter 2, but I want to set this up with uh, this interesting passage. In Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. This is the Apostle John. Uh, He's receiving his vision from God or from the Lord Jesus, actually. Uh, And he gets some very serious news and it has a bittersweet effect on him. He says in Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. And remember, it's not revelations with an S. It's the revelation singular. That's just one of my little things. Okay. That's like saying you're from Illinois, right, Mary? You're not from Illinois. You're from Illinois. Okay. Verse 8 says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book or the scroll that he had, which was sealed, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So go back now to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, but... So when John uh, saw the news or it was revealed to him what was going to happen on the earth, it had a very bitter, sweet effect upon him. In other words, he had a physical reaction. He had the, uh, a sweet anticipation that God's glory would finally win and believers would be vindicated. But yet at the same time, he was literally, the text says, he was nauseated or made sick at his stomach when he saw the wrath that was going to be coming upon the unbeliever. It made him sick to his stomach. The wrath that God would eventually pour out not only on the earth, but for eternity. So we see that eternal life has a sweetness, but there is an eternal wrath that has a bitterness. 
And in the story of redemption that we have in the Bible, really from beginning to end, it is a bittersweet story. But in our culture today, in our world today, in our country today, we don't deal with the bitter part of the story of redemption. For some reason, we emphasize and talk only about the sweet part. In other words, we impress upon people the love of God while we totally ignore the wrath of God. When the gospel message and the message of salvation is both parts. It's both the story of God's love and also God's wrath. That's what we're looking at here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The sweetness would be the Thessalonians because they made the most of very limited spiritual opportunity that they had. But there's some bitterness here because we have the unbelieving Jewish people squandering their great spiritual opportunity and privilege. The Jews represent the ultimate tragedy of apostasy. Do you know what apostasy is? Apostasy is different from heresy. Apostasy is someone who says, I'm a believer, I follow the truth. And apostasy is someone who even knows a lot of what's in the Bible, may even fellowship at a church with believers, but eventually turns away and walks away from the faith. That's apostasy. Heresy is someone who never has anything to do ever with spiritual things or the church or believers. The Thessalonians believed God's truth after only a very brief initial exposure to it. In fact, uh, you don't need to go there, but it's important for you to know that Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 4 is where we see the account of Paul in Thessaloniki uh, planting that church. uh, And we believe he was only there for a few months. And then we come into the letters of Thessalonians, and after only a few months with Paul, they're very grounded in the faith. They're very strong in the faith. Uh, They're standing firm against persecution and standing firm against false teaching. And he compares them here in our verses today, particularly verses 15 and 16 of 1 Thessalonians 2. He compares the faith of these saints who had only spent a few months with Paul to the unbelieving Jewish people who have been God's chosen nation for thousands of years. And yet, turning against God, turning against Christ, turning against Paul, turning against believers, turning against the Gentiles, doing everything within their power to keep the gospel message from going out. That's the bitter part in our story. And the Thessalonian believers are the sweet part. We could pick it up in verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 2, if you just read along with me. It says, for you, brethren, that's always a word that means believers, Christians. You became imitators of the other churches of God who are in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also, just like them, endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as if they did, even as they did in Judea at the hands of the Jews. The Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and then killed the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God. I think he says that because a lot of religious sects uh, who are not true followers of God actually persecute true believers and they think they are pleasing God by doing that. So I think that's why Paul says Paul's Jewish. He was a great Jew among all Jews, and he himself at one time was persecuting Christians, wasn't he? He was helping to murder Christians and imprison Christians before he came to saving faith. He thought in his zeal, misplaced zeal, 
A lot of people are sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. He thought he was doing something good for God by persecuting true believers. We have other faith systems in the world today that do the same thing, right? Putting true believers to death because they think that that's something pleasing to the God that they serve. So he says they're not pleasing to God. Wow. But hostile actually to all men. Because why? Verse 16, they're hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result, their hindering has the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. Both, uh, But wrath has come upon them to the utmost for what they are doing. That's some strong language, isn't it? Strong language. It is interesting. Some of you may be feeling kind of uncomfortable or uneasy when we start talking about the wrath of God and God's anger. Because it's really not something that's discussed among Christians today or, or even meditated upon. Have you ever? I've spent the last couple of weeks, and I'll be honest with you, it has been difficult to meditate upon the wrath of God because it's not comfortable. It's frightening. And if I did not have the assurance that I would that I'm spared from that wrath because of Jesus Christ, I wouldn't even be able to meditate upon it. It's very, very difficult because we in our culture, I think, have been nurtured and programmed not to think about it because it's just too negative. Let's focus on only the love of God. And I can't help myself because after all, love wins, right? Okay, never mind. All right. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Okay. There are many today. I can't resist. I'm sorry. Hello, rabbit trail. Uh, There are many today that teach universalism, right? What is universalism? Everybody goes to heaven. Nobody goes to hell. In fact, there probably isn't even a hell. You either, well, I won't say everybody. Every believer goes to heaven. Every unbeliever just ceases to exist. That's universalism. Uh, And that's the uh, fashionable uh, Christian love today. But it's not biblical. Let's look at what Paul's talking about. Uh, Are there some extra outlines out there, Richard? Is there any left in case anyone needs one? Let's put a definition, which we did last week. Uh, what is God's wrath? What are we talking about? How would we define that? I think to just keep it simple and succinct, uh, you can raise your hands if you want an outline to take notes on, uh, and he'll hand you one. So looks like every single person got an outline already. Very good. Okay. God's wrath can be defined as God's intense hatred of all sin And the fact that he is obliged by his holy nature to judge and punish all sin. That would be a good, succinct definition of what does it mean that God is a wrathful God. Unless we forget, some of us are prone or tempted to think that the wrath of God is something we only hear about in the Old Testament. And it disappears in the New Testament because of grace and because of Christ. And we'll see as we move through uh, this message, and especially when we get to the end of this message in about four hours, that uh, just kidding, just making sure you're awake. All right. I saw some heads fly up, so that's good. All right. We'll see that just because Jesus Christ has come does not mean that God's wrath has disappeared. We have to remember that. 
And I guess you may not like this prompt, but try to remember as you leave here today that salvation is a bittersweet story. Can you say that with me? Salvation is a bittersweet story. And what I mean by that is it certainly is sweet because God in his mercy and his love sent his own son to die for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. That is sweet. But the bitter part is that that is not the destiny of every person. There is a destiny opposite of that for those who reject Jesus Christ as the only way to eternal life. And we tend to forget that. We love John 3.16. It's, it's wonderful. But do you know what John 3.17 says? We need to, you know, as, as uh, Paul Harvey used to say, we need to get the rest of the story. Yeah, some of you are like, Paul Harvey, who's that? Okay, never mind. Just dated myself. Okay, we've already talked about God's wrath is a vanishing doctrine in the world, isn't it? That now, even among the church, especially in America, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. The tendency is to think that God doesn't need to be particularly involved in my life, except if I need him to solve a problem. Uh, And it's the thinking that good people go to heaven. I, I don't want to burst your bubble, and I'm not trying to be negative, but... I'm trying to magnify grace and mercy by pointing out that there is not one single good person that's ever walked this planet. I'm sorry. By nature, we are children of wrath. Now, we can do good deeds as defined how God defines goodness. But I'm talking about inherently within our nature. Some of you are looking at me like I'm not buying it. Okay. You can help me finish this verse, right? Romans chapter 3, verse 23. There are some who are righteous. Yes, there are some. Is that how it goes? Oh, oh, I better get a different translation. Okay. Oh, look at her. She's panicking. There is no one righteous. I was just teasing. Okay, maybe I shouldn't do that. Is that Romans 3.23? There is no one righteous? No, not one? Huh? Oh. Oops. You want to come up and help me? Because I... I need help. He even said, may the Lord help you. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 3.10, sorry, there is no one righteous. Is my bald head getting red? Yeah. There is no one righteous, not even one. Both verses are good, right? Not even one is righteous. Romans 3.10. And of course, when all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, What does all mean? All means all, and that's all that all means. We have today in our country a radically undemanding faith. A toothless line of Judah, so to speak, I would say. And that is so untrue that Christianity, the true Christian faith, is not undemanding. It's so demanding that God had to send his son. Gave up the riches of eternal glory. To come down here among us. That's uh, quite a unfair exchange. When we check the Bible, uh, one author said this, and it's true, that the wrath of God is a major biblical theme. God's wrath is such uh, an essential uh, aspect of the biblical message that the writers even speak of the wrath 
referring to God's wrath, but not calling it by its specific name. For instance, when Jesus told the Pharisees, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's such a central, major theme of Scripture that sometimes the writers don't even say God's wrath. They just say the wrath, assuming that their readers know that they're referring to God's wrath. Because they've heard about it so much. We see God's wrath as a theme in the New Testament, but we often forget about it. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son does have eternal life. But he who does not believe in the Son will not see life. And then read the last sentence with me. But the wrath of God abides on him. That's really an important word there. Abides. Remains. Stays. For the person who has not embraced Jesus Christ as Savior... He is right now at this moment and forevermore the object of God's abiding wrath. I know that's a tough pill to swallow and it's not easy to hear. It's not comfortable because we say, wait, God's the God of love. Doesn't God love everybody? Yes, he does. But here's the thing. Love has boundaries. Love, as defined by the world, means come one, come all, however you want, do whatever you want, and God loves you, and, and you're going to go to heaven, and there's no such thing as hell. And, but God's love is defined by his nature, and God's nature is holy. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk said, God has eyes that are so pure that he cannot look upon evil. Yes, God loves us. But his love is defined by his nature, his holiness, which cannot look upon sin. We are by nature objects of wrath. Hebrews 10 verses 26 through 31. I've kind of summarized it here. The writer says there's a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire deserving much severe punishment. Vengeance is mine. I will repay And then it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's talking specifically here about people who parade as Christians. But in reality, they're not really true, uh, true believers, not truly born again. To be so exposed to the church, exposed to fellowship with believers, especially exposed to sound teaching of Scripture, but not really a true believer there will be even more severe punishment for that person for eternity. Is that something that you knew? Did you realize that the Bible teaches varying degrees of suffering and torment in hell? It's not one size fits all. And by the way, on the sweet side, we're going bitter and sweet today. Bitter and sweet. On the sweet side, you realize there are varying degrees of praise and glory for believers in heaven based upon faithfulness and service in this life. So it's the same for those who spend eternity in hell. There are varying degrees of suffering. And one of the the varying indicators is how much truth have you heard and rejected? Or how many times have you heard of the gospel message about Jesus Christ and said no? And every time you do that, and we'll go to Romans 2 in a little bit, every time you do that, you're just heaping more and more and more of God's wrath upon yourself for eternity. 
I say this cynically, but if you're an unbeliever, it's probably better that you stay away from this place than come. I don't think it's going to make really that. Well, I don't know, maybe it will make that much difference in your eternal experience. So here's some biblical truths about the wrath of God today. And by the way, what is often called the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of this country And it didn't happen here. Uh, Not yet. Maybe it will. Who knows? But so far on record is Jonathan Edwards. And you probably know the title. His sermon is so great that they still study it in secular schools. Our kids studied this sermon at La Mirada High School. Do you know the title of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon? Sinners in the Hands of a Happy God. Is that the title? I did it again. Sarcasm. Sorry. Sinners in the hands of an angry God considered the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of our country. Boy, and did he let it rip. Of course, that was the mid 1700s. So he did it in a Puritan kind of way. But it's a frightening, frightening message. And it's interesting that our schools study that for its literary quality. Hopefully, maybe there are some that get saved by reading and studying that. The wrath of God is still in place. It still exists. It always has. It will for eternity. It's not just an Old Testament doctrine, as we've already seen. God's wrath is holy. It's just. It's pure. It's right. It's perfect in every other quality of his character that we can come up with. It's not unloving of God to be a wrathful God. Sometimes we want God to be either loving or angry, either merciful or loving. But one doesn't cancel out the other. That's not how God's attributes operate. God's wrath is also directed and specific. We see that in places like Romans chapter 1. And that man's wrath is not productive in itself. It has to be put off. Super quickly here about man's wrath. We're not going to dwell on it. But I believe, well, we, we know for sure that anger is an attribute we have because we are made in God's image. And I've mentioned this many times before, but this is a fascinating thing to know. There are communicable attributes of God, meaning attributes that he communicates within our nature, he gives us, that he has. Then God has incommunicable attributes. Attributes that he has that we don't have. Omniscience, omnipresence, uh, omnipotence. But there are attributes that God communicates to us or puts within our nature because we were created in his image. In other words, we have the ability to love because God is love. We have the ability to be truthful because God is truth. We have the ability to think because God thinks. We are spirit, the scriptures say, because we see in the gospel of John that God is spirit. And when God breathed into man, the breath of life, man became a living being. You know, we are creatures who are body and spirit. We have a spirit because God is spirit. And we are angry because God is angry. Or we can show anger because God shows anger. It's a communicable attribute. However, our anger, our wrath rarely, hardly ever accomplishes the righteousness that God's looking for. The scriptures in places like Ephesians 4 and James 1. Of course, Ephesians 4 
Be angry, but do not sin, Paul says. Oh, piece of cake. Okay. I can be angry, but I can't sin. How often have you ever done that? How often have you ever been angry, but there's been no sin involved? Uh, no, zero. Okay. Zero for me. Write me down for zero. <laughs> and he says another thing there, too, that's interesting. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, bad things happen when we let anger kind of set up camp and stay for a while. In other words, deal with it quickly. Nothing good ever happens when we let anger linger. Lingering anger turns into what? Bitterness. Yeah. Which reminds me of the baking chocolate that you sneak into the cupboard when you're a little kid and you're like, "Ooh, look, I found this giant bar of chocolate. You know, you realize there's no sugar in that and you're about ready to throw up. That's bitter. Hey, every kid has to go through that, right? And if your kid hasn't, just set it out for him to have it and just just get it over with. James 1 tells us that man's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God is aiming for. And even Romans 12 tells us, you know what? It's just best if, especially dealing with our enemies, don't take any vengeance. Just, just remove all anger altogether. So there's a great difference, isn't there, between our wrath and God's wrath. There's a great difference. The only time we're allowed to become angry is when we have a righteous indignation. A righteous indignation. But we are never to take revenge from that anger. In other words, our spirit is aroused at injustice or that God's name is being slandered or that the the name of Christ is being slandered. When I look at, uh, I've told you before, I'm deeply troubled by what goes on in Syria and I see what uh, Bashar Assad's doing to his own people. I just get really uh, angry. Righteous anger, but even that has to be tempered. Here's another good definition. If you want to add, if you want to expand on the short definition we had about God's wrath, a better way maybe to define it if we want to get more specific, that it's a principle of rational retributive justice. God's anger or wrath is not just arbitrary maliciousness. There's a great difference. In other words, God has a purpose behind his wrath. He's trying to accomplish something. And it's a deserved wrath. He's bringing retribution. There are other religions, especially in the, in the East, who worship a God of capricious anger. They're always trying not to anger their gods or displease their God because he's a God of wrath and they don't want his wrath coming down upon them. God's wrath is his response to sin, his holy antipathy toward the unholy. And the scriptures say that it can be induced even by ignorance of God. Now, that's something that makes us say, whoa, now, pastor, you're just going too far. Someone who is ignorant of God is innocent and not deserving of his wrath. The scriptures say otherwise. That to be ignorant of God is to be deserving of God's wrath. Romans 1 talks about that especially. Why? Because that's in our nature. It's in our nature. All right, I'm going to move on before you ask me difficult questions. Okay. 
The Apostle Paul says that God's wrath is universally revealed now and always against human impiety and injustice because human injustice and impiety springs from suppression of the truth about God's eternal power and divine nature. In Romans 1, starting with verse 18, he says the power of God or the wrath of God is being continuously revealed from heaven against the wickedness of men who do what? Suppress the truth. In unrighteousness, the sinful human nature suppresses the truth. You know what suppress means, right? Have you ever had a panini sandwich or do you have a panini machine, right? You put the you build the sandwich this big, right? And you put it. My son does, as you know, you build sandwich this big. You put it in the panini machine, right? And you press it down. And what happens? Right. And you get all the cheese that comes out and pile it back up, right? But it it gets flattens out, right? It gets suppressed. That's what the sinful human heart does to the truth. Doesn't just reject it, suppresses the truth. Because the heart doesn't want to hear the truth, doesn't want to know the truth. That's why salvation is a true miracle. Because someone who was suppressing the truth, who now embraces the truth, that's something only God could have done within their heart and mind. Okay, that was the intro. Okay. Okay. I'm just kind of kidding. All right. Some of you had a look of terror on your own faces. Okay. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 2.16, it's where we want to focus. What is Paul saying now about this wrath that has come upon these unbelieving Jews that are hindering the gospel and they have a long history of persecuting Paul. And, and uh, I mean, they've beaten him. They put him in prison. They've tried to kill him. They have persecuted other believers to stop the spread of the gospel. He is addressing specifically these unbelieving Jews when he says all the measure of their sins is filled up. That's a very interesting phrase, which we'll look at in a moment. But notice Paul's heart, and I have the blanks on your outline are darkened and underlined there. Look at Paul's heart, though. And I think we should have the same heart, even for our enemies, even for those who are hostile to the gospel, even those who resist, you know, the efforts uh, that we make to show them the love of Christ. Paul's attitude is that the unbelieving Jews were, were people that he was sad for. But the believing Thessalonians were people that he uh, rejoiced over. They were uh, the unbelievers were the tragic opposite of the believers because they opposed Paul and Christ and the gospel, uh, even the Gentiles at every turn. So Paul rejoices in this passage earlier. We've already covered how we rejoiced over the Thessalonians who had only spent a few months with him. But he's grieved over the Jews who have all the promises of God, the entire history of the nation. What privilege they were the chosen people. And for thousands of years, and yet here they are hating Christ. Paul says he's grieving over them. And let me ask you, do you grieve over the unbeliever? And if we don't grieve over the unbeliever, we need to try to get to that point where we're grieving over the unbeliever. And, and I'm just going to speak the truth. You know, I rarely do that, but I'm going to I need to cool it, don't I, with the sarcasm. I think a lot of times our hearts are just callous and cold toward the unbeliever. I've got my eternal life. I'm good. I'm going to heaven. 
And I might share one or two little things. I timidly may share a little bit here and there. But quite frankly, the plight of the unbeliever is not really my uh, uh, not my problem now. I'm in the kingdom. I'm inside the pearly gates. As far as those outside, they're on their own. It shouldn't be like that. The scriptures are clear that God grieves over the unbeliever. The Old Testament says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. I think sometimes they think that God's up there clapping and having a, you know, whooping it up, you know, every time an unbeliever dies and goes to hell. It's not that at all. It's the opposite. The New Testament tells us that God does not desire that any should perish. God's desire is that all should come to saving faith. But God's not going to force a person like a robot into eternal life. We have a free will. Do we grieve over the unbeliever? Let me tell you, if you meditate on and study the wrath of God, you will begin to grieve for the unbeliever. Yes, we've been rescued, but we should remember what we have been rescued from and remember there are still others. Paul was grieving because they killed their own Messiah and they were killing the prophets. Paul was grieving over them because they were hindering the gospel ministry. And he was grieving over them because he knew that they would suffer God's wrath. Often in the scriptures, Paul says they fill up the measure of their sins. That's a reference to a cup. Now, the Bible very often symbolizes God's wrath in the form or the shape of a cup. Filling up the cup of God's wrath. Uh, we have the bold judgments in the book of the Revelation, don't we? The bold judgments that are poured out. And there are several things that Paul may be alluding to here. I put on your outline. He could have been alluding to it could have been all of these things. Uh, could have been the Babylonian exile that already happened. It could have been the coming uh, destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 A.D. that hadn't happened yet. I think when we look at the context, what he's most probably talking about here is the eternal wrath that rests upon all unbelievers. Who do not accept Jesus Christ as savior. You go to places like Revelation 14 and I synthesize this uh, down for us where it says he will drink talking about uh, the unbeliever. He will drink of the wine of the wrath of God mixed in full strength. That's important. Full strength. God will not hold back one ounce of his wrath directed toward the unbeliever in eternity. The full strength in the cup of his anger being tormented with fire and brimstone day and night without rest. And this is interesting. I don't really have a handle on all of this yet. I don't fully understand all this, but this will occur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb forever and ever. That's interesting. Somehow, some way, the eternal torment of the unbeliever occurs for the glory of God and is always before the eyes of the holy angels and before the Lord. And it's a pleasing, holy, righteous thing. Will you and I, as citizens of heaven, witness that? I don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. To tell you the truth, I hope not. I hope not, because there will be people I know there. But in a glorified state, we know there's no sadness in heaven. So Now, he says they're full measure. 
It literally means they always heap up their sins to the very limit, he says about these unbelieving Jews. He's saying there are sinners and then there are sinners. We tend to do that, don't we? We we, we keep a, a sinner's graph. We think, well, I'm down here and as long as there's a lot of others up here, I'm okay. Like we plot our name. I'm here. I am a sinner, but I'm down here. Look at all these sinners up here. Look, there's Joey and Tim. And I mean, they're they're all ahead of me. So I'm okay. Rob's way up here, even though he's in seminary. So I'm okay because I'm down here. You know, I chose three of the most righteous people. (laughs) That probably wasn't good. I should have picked other people. No, I won't name names. Okay. But the full limit, some people get to that point. You know, God is patient, God is patient, God is patient. And then finally, there's a cutoff point with God and the sinner. And finally, God says, "Okay, I'm just going to give you what you want. You know, that's what we see in Romans chapter one. It's like it says God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what they shouldn't do. God gave them over. Pretty soon, even with the unbeliever, the unbeliever is the object of God's common grace, meaning even the unbeliever, because he lives in God's creation, receives some benefits and some blessings from that. But there does come a time when the unbeliever just wants to be loosed, wants to be loosed, wants to be loosed. And God just says, "Okay, I'm going to let go. And you can have what you want. And it's a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Acts chapter 17 Very interesting. It says, having overlooked the times of ignorance in the past, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent because he has what? Fixed a day. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Even for the entire planet, there's a day. God keeps a calendar. And there's a day marked on that calendar. And it's written on there. It says judgment day. It's a fixed point in time when God will finally reach his limit for the entire planet and say it's time to deal with the sin and the unrighteousness. Here's what I was talking about earlier. Very interesting but scary passage of scripture in Romans chapter two for the unbeliever. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, because where does he place blame? On the unbeliever. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. You're storing it up. It's like a storehouse and the constant rejection of Christ just stores up more and more and more of God's wrath until judgment day when it's released. As I said earlier, it will be more unbearable for those on judgment day who have rejected Christ than for those who have never heard of him. Both will suffer, but for one, it will be far worse. He says wrath has come. That's an important wording there. See, in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 2, but wrath has come upon them. That's a present tense. How can that wrath come upon them already when there they are, they're living and hadn't come on them yet? 
But we know from the way it's structured there in the sentence that what Paul is doing, he's declaring that even though it's future, God's wrath against the unbeliever is so certain and so sure that Paul can talk about it as if it already happened. In other words, he's saying it's a promise. You can take it to the bank. There's no question about it. You will be under wrath for eternity. It's so sure that I'm going to talk about it in the present tense, even though it hasn't come yet. But the wrath of God has come upon them because of what they had done. And God knows their hearts. He says it's come upon them to the utmost. What does that mean to the utmost? It means that God will pour out upon the unbeliever for eternity, the full extent, the fullest expression, the extreme limits of his divine wrath, judgment, punishment and vengeance. Escape and death, the scriptures say, will not be possible. Will not be possible. However. However. I'm not going to let you leave here like that. Wrath is not the last word. Do you see I have a little wink there? Love wins. I'm a very ornery person. I'm sorry. Some people call me a provoker. God's wrath is far outweighed by his love. That's the good news. Good news. That's the greatest news. It's the most unbelievable news. Yes, God's wrath is real. Yes, it is eternal. Yes, it rests on the unbeliever. But there's something far greater, far deeper, far broader, far just as eternal. And that is God's love. The unbeliever, as I mentioned, does experience God's common grace just because he lives in God's world. That's why Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Then you'll be like your father in heaven because he loves the unbeliever. Because he sends rain on both the evil and the good, right? And he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. That's why he also says, today is the day of salvation. Call upon the Lord today while you may. Some unbelievers are living under common grace and they get the wrong impression that everything's okay with God. When God in reality is just being patient and blessing you with his common grace. But there's a particular grace that comes only to the child of God, only to the believer. Romans chapter nine, a tremendous passage. Now, Romans is probably the most difficult book in the Bible to understand, especially those first uh, 11 chapters can be very difficult, extremely theological. But Paul says there, what if God willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known? That's interesting. Willing. God's more than willing to demonstrate his wrath because it's a holy attribute. There's nothing wrong with that. What if he then chose instead to endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In other words, this verse, this passage answers the question, if God is a loving God, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? I thought about that last night. We went to see the movie The Promise with Christian Bale about the uh, Armenian genocide. Uh, It's playing limited. It's in La Habra. That's where we saw it. But. I was watching some of that, and it's not a feel-good movie, so 
but it's based on a true story. But during World War One, you know, the Turks uh, killed like one and a half million Armenians. But uh, I was just thinking as I was watching that, I was just troubled in my spirit. I mean, I was asking how, you know, I know that God is loving. Then, you know, why do things like this happen? How can a one and a half million people uh, be murdered? But I try to remind myself of the other side of the coin that God is being patient by giving us this time. Evil is happening, but though men mean evil against us, God can use it for good. You know, and God has the right to do with his creation what he wants. But uh, as I've told many people, uh, try to think of it in terms of God is just being patient so that even more can come to saving faith this long period of time we live in. And it says that God endures with patience vessels that should be, uh, or vessels prepared for destruction. You know, a better word there for prepared is fitted. Fitted for destruction. Meaning, one fits himself. Like when you put your clothes on, you dress yourself. Our little ones get to that point where they say, I can dress myself. That's what that word prepared means. It means to fit oneself. It doesn't mean that God prepared people for destruction. What he's saying is that people in their sinful nature prepare themselves for destruction. And he did this so that he would make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, whom he called even among the Gentiles. In other words, God is patient with those who deserve his wrath, save some so that we could be trophies of his mercy. See, the wrong question is, why does God send people to hell? The right question is, why does God allow anyone into heaven? Is what Paul's saying. We read this earlier. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're by nature children of wrath. But God and his great mercy and his great love with which he loved us made us alive with Christ. Let's think upon Jesus, our Savior, just for a moment. Jesus and God's wrath. First of all, what happened on that cross that morning at his crucifixion was that he took the cup of God's wrath for you. Literally, the truth is, as it reads in our scriptures, is that you and I should have been hanging on those crosses. But Jesus took our place because only Jesus' death was acceptable to God. I could have died on that cross for my own sin, but it wouldn't have been acceptable to God. Jesus suffered for his whole life, didn't he? It says that he learned a lot of different things from his obedience, that he was in glory, he was rich, and he became poor. And then he suffers at the cross physically, the pain of bearing our sins and the, the pain of abandonment. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because we know the scriptures say that God's eyes are pure, of purer eyes than to behold evil. So Jesus, who had an eternity past of fellowship with his heavenly father, is separated from his father while he hangs on the cross with our sins. It's it's too great to fathom. Did he cease to be God? Not at all. But he was out of the loving, intimate fellowship with the father while he died for our sins. 
Jesus became the object of God's full wrath and intense hatred against our sin. God's vengeance and fury was poured out on all sin that had been stored up since the beginning of time and for all sin that would be committed on into the future. He was literally dying for trillions upon trillions upon trillions and numerable number of sins. The Lamb of God, sinless deity, the eternal creator of the universe. Here's an important word on your outline. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is and was our propitiation. This is an important word. It's a word that's in the scriptures. What is a propitiation? I put the definition on your outline, I think. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the very end and in so doing changes God's wrath into favor. Isn't that marvelous? The death of Christ for you changed you from an object of wrath to an object of favor. You are now the object of God's favor, God's blessing. He calls you his child. He calls you his son. He gives you an inheritance. He adopts you into his family. He gives you eternal life and glory because of the death of Christ. Romans 3 says what? All of sin falls short of God's glory, justified as a gift of God's grace through the redemption in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. First John two and first John four tells us that Jesus Christ himself circle, highlight, underline a person. Jesus Christ, the man, the living being. Is the propitiation for our sins. Love is not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Without Jesus Christ, God cannot show you favor. You can receive common grace, but you cannot receive the particular grace, the particular favor. The scriptures say what Paul said, eye has not seen and ear has not heard the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even describe the wonder and the beauty and the magnificence of what awaits us. But only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, indeed, love does win. I'm like a dog with a bone. But only for those Who believe in the Son and have eternal life. Not for those who do not believe in the Son. Because the wrath of God abides on him. The coming of salvation in Christ does not mean that divine wrath has been eliminated. Sometimes I think we think incorrectly about that. The gospel proclamation calls hearers to repentance and promises about the wrath to come. Salvation through Christ is salvation from... There's a big word. Eschatological. It just means end time things or the end. Salvation in Christ means escape from the wrath that will come upon the earth at the end of time. Eschatology is the study of the end time things. The book of the Revelation is eschatology. So these scripture passages like we have before us this morning and John 336 demonstrate that in certain respects, God wrath is already resting on humankind. 
because the end times, the end of all things have already been initiated by the first coming of Christ and by the preaching of the gospel. That's why the Bible says we live in the last days. Days are getting short. Last thing. The doctrine of the wrath of God is a hard thing to think about. Because it's not nice. It's not pretty. It's difficult. It's sad. It's scary. However, just like with all of God's attributes, we have to praise him and thank him for his wrath. When was the last time one of you little ones thanked your parents for giving you the spanking? Thank you for your wrath, Daddy. Uh, we're, not just, we're not used to that. Oh, you guys don't get spankings. That's right. Perfect children. He's looking at me like he's... Okay. We have to thank and praise God for his wrath because it's one of his attributes. And we say, how can we do that? Here's some ways that you can praise and thank God for his wrath. We don't have to fear his wrath any longer. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Romans 10, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, how does it end? You will be saved. You will be saved. Some say, oh, we shouldn't motivate people into the kingdom of God by fear. Or really? Fear of my father motivated me to obey many times. Fear is a good motivator. But as we come to Christ, that fear disappears and we become the object of God's love. Secondly, God must be praised for his patience. The wrath of God reminds us that God is being patient. He's waiting. He's bringing more into salvation. The wrath of God should motivate us to urgently evangelize the lost. And it should remind us that one day all wrongs will be punished. And a new, sinless, righteous, perfect kingdom will be born. So a difficult passage, difficult words, but we still praise and exalt and worship God for his wrath. Even though we may not fully comprehend it, even though it may leave us with unanswered questions. We know that he is a perfect, loving, merciful God. And so that his wrath, too, must be praised. Let's stand together. Let's have a word of prayer as we close. If some of you are wondering where you are in your relationship with God or with Christ and you're not sure. Please come and talk to me. Talk to someone else around you. Uh, but it's not something to trifle with. We, we don't live in a culture today that talks about God's wrath. But God's wrath is part of the gospel message. God's wrath is the motivation. It's the necessity. It's the need. Because every person who has not embraced Christ as Savior is the object of God's abiding wrath. That's just the truth of the matter. But we serve a loving God, don't we? A merciful God who, because of Christ, gives us forgiveness, gives us mercy, gives us favor, calls us his child. So come and talk to me. Talk to someone else if you need to clarify where you stand. Heavenly Father, thank you for these things. Uh, I, I picture Moses up on Mount Sinai and the people looked up on the mountain and it was just a raging fire with smoke. And the scriptures say our God is a consuming fire. Father, your wrath, we know, is connected to your holiness. You are so pure. And that's a foreign concept to us because we are so impure. 
We're impure in our thoughts. We're impure in our words. We're impure in our deeds. We sin daily, sometimes hourly. So it's hard for us to grasp and comprehend a God who is righteous, who is sparkling, who is pure, who is nothing but light, whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil and sin. But Father, we see ourselves as sinners. We see ourselves as in great need. And then we look to Jesus and we fall at his feet and we worship him and we praise him and we thank him that he turned your wrath against us into favor. And we will be praising and thanking and worshiping him for eternity. So, Father, help our feeble, earthly, forgetful minds to meditate upon these thoughts, to think about these things. You are a great God. You are the only God, the one true God. And Jesus Christ is the only Savior who came into the world to rescue us. So we want to give you as our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus all the praise, all the glory that you deserve. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here today. I hope you were blessed. And we look forward to seeing you next week, Lord willing.